I had rather be a kitten and cry mew than one of these same meter ballad mongers. William Shakespeare. And to dry her royal pelt, she ran along the strand. I knew a very wise man, and he believed that if a man were permitted to make all the ballads, he need not care who made all the laws of a nation. Andrew Fletcher of Saltoon, 1697. And says she in accents mild, Ted and ages kettles now, which he is old that she Worthless ballads, my friend. Good God, man, ballads are among the best things being written today. Lord Byron. For she and Moses were standing in their skin. I like to have all the old songs sung to me. In some mysterious way, they elevate the mind. St. Ignatius of Loyola. Ballads. Absolute rubbish, most of them. Charles Dickens. The National Library of Ireland has amassed a magnificent collection of ballads, and I have no doubt that could Shakespeare and Lord Byron spend an evening or two browsing among them, they'd modify their views on the popular song. Shakespeare's opinion of the ballad-maker is at least consistent with those expressed by his contemporaries Massinger and Johnson, and it must be admitted that many of the ballads of his time were nonsensical. The lover in As You Like It, sighing like a furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow, wasn't just a figment of the imagination of the greatest snob in literature. Dickens's ill opinion of the ballad is inexplicable, but his ideas of the works of the Victorian poor was fairly typical of his time. Indeed, so low was the opinion of many of the literati of Victorian England and Ireland of the broadsheets that it's very fortunate that such a comprehensive collection as the National Libraries exists at all. But there they are, thousands and thousands of them, freely available to social historians and singers and programme-makers, unedited most of them and unpublished. True, Zimmerman and Freeman and Colm O'Loughlin and a few others have made some of them public. But there are thousands left, waiting for the diligent researcher and the enterprising publisher to show them to the world again. We spoke to Alf McLaughlin, their keeper, about them. A great library accumulates great quantities of material, and very often the quantities that come from one source illuminate the quantities that come from another. And this is why something like an encyclopedic collection of ballads has a special value that the same items scattered in different libraries wouldn't have. In this library, we have collections which came as units and things which grew bit by bit, one little bit from here and one from there over the years. I suppose the biggest single collection we have, in the sense that it came as a unit, is a collection of the words of ballads made by P.J. McCall. P.J. McCall is, I suppose, known to posterity as the author of Kelly the Boy from Calan, though many a singer wouldn't be able to tell you his name. He lived in the liberties of Dublin, and he was a strong Dublin nationalist, so to speak, very keen on local colour. 
and he made a collection of street ballads. Unfortunately, he didn't have a very strong bibliographical sense, and it's hard looking at the pasted-down items in his book to say whether the things pasted down are bits out of newspapers or your genuine old-fashioned ballad sheets sold on the street at the fair, on a fair day. But uh, whether or which, so to speak, there are 13 or 14 volumes containing the words of songs collected by P.J. McCall in this way. Another collection of somewhat similar style, except that it has the great added advantage of having music, is a collection made over many years in the early decades of this century by Sam Henry, who was a northern collector, and he contributed them week after week to a northern provincial newspaper. But he kept not only separate printings of the songs and their tonic sulfur arrangement as they occurred in the newspaper, but also typescripts. There were over 600 in the whole collection, and he was kind enough to deposit copies of it in a few of the larger libraries. He called the general series Songs of the People, and for the musical interest, they are of more value, obviously, than a thing which gives words only. Of the greatest historical interest, perhaps, among our collections, is a much smaller collection which came to us by a devious route, ultimately from the papers of Thomas Davis. Uh, Charles Gavin Duffy acted, whether legally or not, I don't know, but in effect he acted as a literary executor for Thomas Davis when Davis died tragically young. So many of Davis's papers finished up in the papers of Charles Gavin Duffy. Now, Charles Gavin Duffy, of course, left Ireland shortly after the Young Ireland events of 1848, and had a long political career in Australia, revisiting Ireland later, towards the end of the century, of course. And I find it quite an extraordinary thing that I met his daughter on numerous occasions. And his daughter it was who, 20-odd years ago, gave this library the remains of his collection of papers. I say remains because they'd had many vicissitudes in travelling about the world, in particular in being in a villa in the south of France during the Second World War. But among the Davis papers included in this very generous gift of the Gavin Duffy papers was a small rolled-up bundle with a little label outside and Charles Gavin Duffy's note on the label saying that these were Thomas Davis's ballad collection with characteristic lines marked. And this turned out to be a number of broadside ballads which Davis had apparently collected probably in his youth when poor man didn't live very long anyway but he had collected in the hometown, so to speak, around Mallow and District, because many of them were printed by Haley of Cork. And interestingly enough, although Davis, as far as we know, did no Irish himself, this collection included a number of ballads printed in what passed for Irish, that is to say, in the Irish language, but printed by somebody who only knew how to spell English, with a very strange result. It's a difficult task, trying to decipher the Irish ballads written phonetically in Roman script, but we found it worth the effort. Some of the ballads printed in this fashion are excellent. Here's a repeal song to the tune of Schlier the Mon. Did he intergill, sir? 
Another Haley ballad about O'Connell goes like this. Nil trachter Huirish Caesar the Rebuch na Pirter Lor, na curry crone fene, nor stain reva gunkus nod. Ta crave hill wassel gale glass, mac phoenix de roop na vag, the Huirigan repel hoing, gan buechus cuigi foil. Ta silche sueco fabus er yegev bohura blaw, is bingling keol na nanle, and lairheve guigi foil. Is evening coach a plerecht, agus action a moon da rog or scobar drunz a gaelach and repel hoing on a hroop a nod. Ta peel is a hroop da recha, is ni gaelic gandolgas dail, is Wellington da sene, tied eggsha da hurt con la. The hehen dukes on elev, is ni feder a hurish dail, is fech ar shauko ering da leir hor a grochas. Da marhecho brian bosene, kinedes calachon. Dolin the near trainre, agus eirlech an amun ghoig. Murachon rucherechtig, the lerig mail mun the da yocho canal cad plerech, gan boycus a goge foil. Near vonelum da nienach, nil boiler gan cowed an odd, ta grass da noen gil naifair, is on tain vac a surk in the fart. She don lo conelo erin, o lane loch is a good an oin, maravich coha caira. I doubt very much if Davis knew the strength of that fine song. He had some strange notions about ballads. Listen to him in a review of Duffy's Ballad Poetry of Ireland, published in 1845. The Irish-speaking people have songs by the thousand, but they, especially the political ones, are too despairing. The poor, who are limited, and therefore in some sort barbarised, to English alone, have only the coarsest ballads, wherein an occasional thought of frolic or wrath or misery is utterly unable to redeem the mass of threadbare jests, ribaldry, mock sentiment from the heathen mythology, low thoughts, and barbarous misuse of the metres and rhymes of the language. The middle classes are forced to put up with snatches from those above and below them, and have less music than either. There are great gaps in Irish songs to be filled up. This is true even in the songs of the Irish-speaking people. Most of those hitherto in use were composed during the last century, and therefore their grief is slavish and despairing, their joy reckless and bombastic, their religion bitter and sectarian, their politics Jacobite. Ignorance, disorder, and every kind of oppression weakened and darkened the lyric genius of Ireland. But even these, such as they are, diminish daily in the country. 
and a lower class came in. We have before us a number of ballads now printed at Cork in Irish and English and Irish mixed. They are little above the street ballads in the English tongue. A high class of ballads would do immense good. The present race demean and mislead the people as much as they stimulate them. Davis was a victim of what Sean O'Failoin called the nostalgia fantasy complex, still with us, I'm afraid. His idea of what ballad poetry should be would have delighted old Art McCooey, warriors of old on white steeds fighting for an errand that never existed. The old songs Davis loved had the literary power to distract the hovels from their misery and to keep, at whatever cost of illusion, the native pride alive. But, as O'Feilon pointed out, it was a phenomenon of Davis's day to see Irish poets singing of the simple day-to-day affairs of the people. A hurling match, an avaricious priest, a stolen horse, a bailiff's death. This new popular literature helped to enliven the whole life of the countryside. And if Davis didn't like it, millions of poor people did. Haley of Cork was a more important populariser than Thomas Davis. Printers. Who print the broadside ballads? Generally speaking what the printing trade would call the cheap jobbing houses. There was no deluxe printing here. Deluxe printing required very heavy capital investment, plenty of printing presses, highly skilled tradesmen doing fine work, and none of these were available to the chap who wanted to knock off a sheet of 10 or 12, 15, 16 ballads, chop them up in strips, and send them out with the chapman to sell them in the street. One in Dublin who did a great trade, if the number of surviving specimens of his work is any evidence, was a man named Brereton, who worked in a long-vanished back street. It was called Goodman's Lane, and it was one of a warren of back streets behind St. Patrick's Cathedral. And these were all cleared away when St. Patrick's Park, which, as we now know it, was being laid out. And Leslie Shepherd is the author of a book on the broadside ballad. He's corresponded with us. And he claims, perhaps facetiously, that Brereton was the worst printer ever. And uh, there's many a true word spoken in jest because uh, it's often extremely difficult to make out even what words were meant. The misprinting is so bad. Use for ends, ends for use, M's for use, every possible misprint. And bad press work, that means that the, the print didn't fully press down on the paper, so it's full of blotches and blobs of every shape and size. Dreadful stuff to try and read altogether. In Cork, we had a printer called Haley, who had a very long career, or perhaps I should say his family had a long career in the printing business, and preserved quite a high standard of printing. Haley is of interest because he was one of the printers who printed the matter in Irish according to the Conventions of English Spelling. And in Belfast, we had, uh, towards the end of the century, a printer named Nicholson, He is of interest to us in the collection here because we're lucky enough to have uncut sheets from Nicholson. 
that means we have got specimens of the sheets, which is machines printed off, before they were cut up into narrow strips to be sold around the streets. And the quirky thing about this is that quite clearly, Nicholson in Belfast was catering for orange and green customers because some of the sheets contain exclusively material of orange interest and other sheets contain material of exclusively green interest. So we can be sure that he was being very careful where he sent his dealer selling. Another Belfast printer who exercised a similar Catholic taste with a small c, you know, indifferently printing the royal robe and the sons of Levi, various esoteric Masonic or orange material, and then lines in praise of Reverend Father Matthew and material of that kind for the Catholic audience, was Alexander Maine. And this Maine family was the family which gave us Rutherford Maine, the dramatist. Here now is a piece from the Haley Collection in the National Library. It bears the imprint Joseph O'Haley. On the top of the sheet there's a rough woodcut of Father Matthew, uh, surrounded by the words, The Apostle of Temperance. It's a macaronic song, and if we had an air for it we'd sing it, but we haven't, alas. The great meeting that had been held in Cork, by this holy man I mean for to describe. He has converted hundreds of thousands since he got to wear the royal robes of Christ. Guim banach na naev agus banach na nangelesh, banach dvirivahir agus rigaln of lahaslesh, banach naev pol agus banach naev paderlesh, to the Reverend Father Matthew of Cork City. I am sure you have heard of Mary Magdalene for some time and this world was going astray. By her good penance, both late and early, the Lord of Heaven, he heard her prayer. God bless each member that wears a medal. For their soul's sake, I hope they will not break trust. The general day when Michael sounds the trumpet, the rocks will smash and the earth will bust. Tukig mirivahir is a lan of banahish, she said ish kuinyo hyolta farahish, kungach anam bochta all on a hyola damnahe. May the Lord direct them that's going astray. Well, on reflection, I doubt if that ballad was ever meant to be sung. It's purely a propaganda piece, as so many ballads were. Here's another ballad uh, from the National Library Collection, The Teetotaler and the Landlady. I met a landlady and she crying all alone. The Laurus a mare le pray, madam, what ails you? Come tell me the reason and cause of your moan. The dragger ni hany in the vinium. I'm lamenting daily since those joined the corps. As I parted my neighbours that were constantly crazy, got down a gold. Far ear cut a year, not be my bakey. My husband will bait me, gonna hit a legoid. Lee my hay cups, it's my horses, gonna By this alteration, he ve caught her with polished shoes decent the hostel of toil. Gorherty totalers lehele dead a lemsch and left me completely gunping and There aren't many uh, 18th century ballads in the National Library collection. The following one, printed by Dowling of Dublin, was a thing called The Volunteers of Ireland. A new song to the tune of Rule Britannia, printed in 1787. 
When darkness spread her sable vest and threatened fair Hibernia's land, the flame of virtue fired each breast and formed a glorious patriot band. Inspired with freedom's sacred flame, they drew the sword, they point the lance, and while their country soars to fame, they dread not Spain, they fear not France. No toils they heed, no dangers shun when acting in their country's cause, Whate'er occasions call, they run, and prove to supplement the laws. No force their souls shall e'er enslave, for chains they scorn, though formed of gold. No king their freedom to them gave, that charter from high heaven they hold. That charter still they will maintain, and to their sons transmit it pure. Nay, the eternal self will deign that charter ever to secure. Well, of course, that is none of the earthly passion of the ballads made in the following century, when, for the first time in their history, the ordinary people began to realise the immense possibility of politics as a means to attaining social justice. And when one considers the momentous political happenings of that century, it comes as no surprise that the National Library has so many fine political ballads in its collection. Oh, now the forgeries are found out against our gallant members, oh... The Tories rung with many a tongue, poor Paddy is often slandered, oh. Those Fenian crimes declare the times are never out to season, oh. But gag the press for nothing less, we'll check the flood of treason, oh. So Piggott is gone to Davy Jones, and the times it is defeated, oh. Long live the men that did defend our gallant Irish members, oh. Now Piggott he did laugh and grin when forging of those letters, oh. And from the times he got the tin, but now he yells with fury, oh. Loud were his cries on every side for measures of coercion, oh. For to secure a verdict sure, the crowd spared no exertions, oh. Piggott surely coloured the brass, they thought he was the charm, oh. To strike the blow, it was no go. Our members are free from harm, oh. They thought to cripple the Irish cause, delivered wicked orations, oh. And to fill his purse, this nasty beast, sold obscene publications, oh. National issues, of course, didn't have to be major political events to catch the ear or the attention of the balladeer. And there are a number of topics which are perhaps more or less forgotten now, which are represented very widely in a ballot collection. Take the fighting of an Irish brigade on behalf of the Pope during the time of the Italian Revolution in the 18... whatever it was. Again, something over 100 years ago. This was the subject of numerous ballads, and uh, poor Garibaldi came in for a terrible knocking from the balladeers, I'm afraid, principally because some sort of an attack on the Pope was involved, and... This caught the imagination of the public that there were gallant Irishmen out there fighting to defend the Pope. Little has been written about the ballad singers themselves. That great social historian Mayhew has, however, left us an account of the doings of Irish ballad singers in London, around the time that Garibaldi was doing high deeds initially. A little further away, the ballad singers drew their custom. As the listener edged closer, a murmured comment would be caught. In troth... It's worth a halfpenny to hear him go over it, let alone the paper. This minstrel would be found to be a tall man with a sad face. 
His song, sung in a soft, tremulous voice to the favourite tune of Yawl Harbour, concerned two faithful lovers. He cultivated the style known as humouring, consisting of twirling every word several times around his tongue. This pair discohorsed with such forhorse of his owning. In another lane, an elderly man accompanied himself on a cracked fiddle as he celebrated one of the boys of the ninety-eight rebellion who was sent to Van Diemen's land. Upon his head he carried a warehouse, a very large and extremely decrepit hat. One of his wrinkled red cheeks leaned over his fiddle, whilst his twinkling black eyes watched the movement of his left hand on the strings. When the harsh chords ceased, he lowered the instrument slowly and stood helplessly with his fiddle under one arm and a sheaf of broadsides in his hands. A country lout, with swaggering bashfulness, tendered his penny for a copy of the song, and, for safekeeping, rolled it in his hands and thrust it into a pocket. Suddenly, a young woman who had been standing amongst the crowd, unnoticed, in an old plaid cloak and straw bonnet, began singing with a sweet connacht lisp and slightly nasal twang. The hour for melody had arrived. With her opening words, Come all young girls both far and near and listen unto me, the bystanders formed a ring of listeners around her. This type of song seems to have been the most popular by far in Irish fairgrounds, if we are to believe the travellers to Ireland in the 19th century. That great rake, Prince von Puchler Moscow, found the versification fascinating, and when he inquired about it, he was told that most of the good songs are made that way, sir, tis an Irish fashion. It was certainly an Irish language fashion, having its effect on the new songs in a new language, as English was to about five million people in the beginning of the century. But uh, this quaint style of versification remained throughout the century. Here's a good example, the Colleen Fune. One morning early for recreation as I peregrinated by the riverside, whose verdant verges were decorated with bloom by nature diversified. A charming creature I espied convenient, sadly playing a melodious tune, she far transcended the goddess Venus, her appellation is the Colleen Fune. When she recovered her last sensation, her situation I wished to know, and hailed her thus in my compilation, my dearest creature, you seem in woe. With that, sir, said she, you are the occasion of my vexation and utter ruin, therefore grant reconciliation to your fair maiden, the Colleen Fune. My dearest creature, I must forsake thee. I'm immigrating from Carberry in search of riches and fortune's favours to foreign regions of celebrity. But when I return to this Irish nation, with money freighted, our love will bloom, and I'll crown your joys with felicitation, my charming maiden, sweet Colleen Fune. But there are other types of love songs. Here's a fine example of a rollicking randy type, very popular in the towns of Ireland a century and a half ago. If you listen to me song, I will not detain you long. But to sing it, it will make me a melancholy. I was gone through Byram Street when a girl I chanced to meet. She'd a basket and she said her name was Polly. Oh dear me. She'd a lovely wavy hair. I really thought my bride that I would make her. 
Till I found out her abode, that she lived up a Scotland road, with a dashing, a smashing Irish excavator. She slyly tipped the wink, and she asked me for a drink. Says she, young man, I think you are a baker. Well, we went into Rigby Sanug, and I paid for a mug. But I didn't think she had a navigator. Oh, dear me, she'd a lovely wavy hair. I really thought my bride I would make her. Till I found out her abode, that she lived up a Scotland road. With a dashing, smashing Irish excavator. We had glasses, two or three. I was getting on the spree. She said she hoped I never would forsake her. When a chap outside the bar shouted, Touch it if you dare. And you'll be slaughtered by the Irish navigator. Oh, dear me, she'd lovely wavy hair. I really thought, my bride, that I would make her. Till I found out her abode, that she lived up a Scotland road. Oh, with a dash and a smashing Irish excavator. In all probability, that ballad was made by a professional ballad maker, one of those who depended for their living on their compositions being accepted by the printers. Mayhew sought one of them out, a man who had emigrated to London and who wrote for the famous Irish broadside printer Ryle in that city. Uh, about 14 years ago, sir, at home, sir, I, I tried to make a shilling or two by selling my verses. Writing poetry is no no comfort to me in my sickness. It, it might if I could write just as I please. You see, the printers like hanging subjects best, and I don't. But when any of them sends to order a copy of A Sorrowful Lamentation, I must supply them. As it is, I, I sometimes write verses all over a slate and rub them out again. We must live hard, sir, to live at all, sir. We we live <laughs> we live on bread and butter and tea. A good week is three shillings, a poor week is a shilling, and sometimes I make nothing at all that way. So I leave you to judge, sir, whether we live hard. For the, for the comings in must feed six of us. It's a long, hard struggle. Oh, we do live hard indeed, sir. And yes, their verses could be enchanting. Not great poetry, to be sure, but they gave release and delight to millions of poor people. Caroline and her bold sailor was one of the top pop songs, in the true sense of that word, in the 60s. It is of a noble man's daughter So comely and handsomely near her father possessed of great fortune, full thirty-five thousand a year. He had but one only daughter, Caroline is her name, we are told. 
One day from her drawing room window, she admired a young sailor bold. Her cheeks, they appeared like two roses. His hair was as black as the jet. Young Caroline watched his departure. Walk around and young William she met. She said, I'm a nobleman's daughter, possessed of ten thousand in gold. I'll forsake both me father and mother, and wed my young sailor bold. Said a William, the young lady, I remember, your parents you are bound to mind. On sailors there is no dependence when they leave their true lovers behind. Be advised, stay at home with your parents and do by them as you are told. And never let anyone tempt you to wed with a young sailor bold. Some of the more enterprising printers gave us some excellent translations from Irish, and these proved immensely popular in rural districts where the Irish language was ra- uh, declining rapidly. The great Clare song on Binching Lochra lived on into the middle of the 19th century in a good translation by some anonymous scribbler of ballads. A love song, or a song of seduction, call it what you will, it's a fine song in any language. As I roved out one morning Down by a clear riverside With dogs and gun commanding Indecent and becoming pride I espied a lovely creature whose fair locks I chanced to view with a bench of rushes making as pleasing as ever grew. I looked about most careful the place being free and clear i used some kind endeavors with this fair maid i loved so dear she said kind sir be easy i am a maid you needs must know these rushes cost some labor, so spare them and let me go. I gently did embrace her, in my arms I did her entwine. If your parents they are pleased now, in wedlock bands we will join. My heart you have captivated on this place where 
where the rushes grow, and forever I'll embrace you, and your bunny bein sheen Some of the old ballads travelled well, so to speak, and you'll find variations of them in Britain and in America. One of the bawdiest sea shanties of them all is a thing called Let Him Claim the Rigging Like His Daddy Used to Do. All the old seafaring men of Wexford know it. I don't know whether it's based on a ballad printed by Brereton of Dublin or whether Brereton's ballad is based on it. But anyway, here's Brereton's version. Don't worry, it's, it's cleaner by far than the Wexford version. This was very popular in Dublin's dockside pubs a century ago. A sailor being weary, he lay down his head. He called for a candle to light him to bed. The maid that brought the candle thought it was no harm to get in behind him to keep his back warm. The sailor next morning pulled out his purse, saying, Here is twenty guineas for you to pay the nurse, and here is twenty more to get your meat and bread. You see what you get by lighting sailors up to bed. Some few years after, Jack came that way again. Instead of having one son, his darling had two. And now, says Jack, me darling, we'll dress them up in blue and let them climb the rigging like their daddy used to do. Now Jack arrived at home and he settled down for life. He feels quite contented with his ducky little wife. His twins, now they are married, and of children they've a few. And soon they will be doing what their granddad used to do. Another song that travelled well was The Green Rushes. Some people think that the American song of that name, which gained such popularity during the Civil War, was based on this song. If it was in this town my darling did lie, he would want for nothing that money could buy. Among all your officers, your duty I will do. Won't you let me go with you? No, my love, no. I'll go to your officer and fall at his knees, saying, here is ten guineas to pay my love's fees. And if that will not do it, so long with you I'll go. Won't you let me go with you? No, my love, no. A waistcoat and small clothes I will freely put on and pass as your comrade as we go along. And if that does not do, it's along with you I'll go if you let me go with you. No, my love, no. I'll go to some nunnery and there spend my life. I ne'er will get married nor be a man's wife. While you will prove constant, it's single I'll remain. I ne'er will get married till you come back again. Then there are songs about schoolmasters, those heroic figures of 19th century Ireland. Haley of Cork printed a ballad called The Wild Sports of O'Sullivan. It speaks for itself. My name is O'Sullivan, the eminent teacher. My qualifications will ne'er be extinct. I read as good Latin as any in the nation. Without doubt I'm experienced in arithmetic. My occupation is constantly teaching. Indeed I have learned such capital rule. 
Euclid, his optics and Moore's mensuration, by deep penetration I've learned at school. Indeed I am counted by quality famous, surpassing all ages in every degree, both generous and candid in sweet mild behaviour, well grounded in learning and philosophy. I'd write a fine letter on paper or parchment, construe an author or dance a good reel. I court the fair maidens, unknown to their parents, and trash in their barns without evidence. I encounter the valiant of congregations, I beat the courageous and humble the bold. I am the true son of the ancient Milesian, in the annals of fame my name is enrolled. As the old ballad-maker told Mayhew in London, hanging songs were also very popular in both Ireland and England in the 19th century. The ballad-makers of those days spared none of the gory details, but they did make excuses for the crime in question. The culprit was usually whisky. Here's a piece called The Lamentation of William Healy for the murder of his wife and child. Young men and tender maidens, I pray you lend an ear, as I am locked in my lonely cell, the truth I will declare. For the murder of my lawful wife, likewise my only child, "'Tis for the sake of cursed gold I took their precious lives. "'It was a false and wicked woman that fell in love with me, "'and for the sake of twenty pounds with her I did agree "'to murder my companion that night I did prepare, "'and with her blood I own to God my hands I did besmear. "'When I began this murder it was dreadful for to hear, "'being overpowered with liquor no danger did I fear. "'Tis with a knife I pierced her heart as she lay on the bed, "'and with a bloody weapon I did cut off her head. "'My name is William Healy, my age is twenty-one, "'I never injured anyone and never done no wrong "'until this cruel murder I have done most barbarously. "'Good Christians all be satisfied to live in poverty. "'Now... As I am going to part this life, one last request I crave, to have this wrote on my headstone when I am in my grave, to shun all evil company, your pledge for to adore, and God he will protect you, now and forevermore. That was a Carlo song, by the way. Mr Healy came from Tullow. But the National Library Collection has other kinds of songs which reflect the varied hues of life in the 19th century. Here's an extraordinary thing called the female prize fighter. Old Aaron's sons and daughters, your attention now I crave. Till I relate the praises of an Irish girl so brave, who fought the German's daughter for the laurel she long wore. And nobly she defeated her upon Columbia's shore. But now the time of trial comes, Jane coming to her ground. With might she came unto her fight upon the second round. The German dame fought actively, they both came to a close. Down slap angles the German giving claret from the nose. The German girl got savage-like when twice she was knocked down. But Jane fought her close and keen up to the eleventh round. The German with a favourite box, Jay Murphy, did surprise. She lay for half a minute still, she's dead was all their prize. The twelfth round next, the Germans vexed, their woman went to grass. 
Her eye was sore, she'd fight no more, her strength was failing fast. To Jean she handed up the belt and two thousand dollars bright. She'll remember Jane from Ireland and the day she went to fight. So Aaron's sons and daughters fair fill up the flowing glass and toast to brave Jay Murphy, a very valiant lass. She thrashed the German daughter with strength and sinew keen. She wears her female champion belt, clasped round her jacket green. The ballad singer of England, like the villain of melodrama, died to music. He was ground to death, somebody said in 1840, by barrel organs from Pisa and Milan. In Ireland, he lived on until the turn of the century and afterwards. Uh, one person who had an interest in this kind of thing was Eamon Kant. Eamon Kant, of course, is very well known as Piper. And for the occasion of some Conan O'Gaelge or or similar meeting of importance to be held in Galway about 1912, he decided that the the broadside ballad tradition was due for a revival and he printed off a ballad which was to be sold to the ordinary native speakers in the Gaeltacht areas then right up to and east of the city of Galway I suppose and the ballad he chose to treat in this way was Banan e Rui and Yoi to Dushain Koip the Nauran Shah Jaren Vilogling Ach Stampa Gafing and Kurtig Runer and Kordanashunta Shay Said Arkur de Malatlia but more interesting than that little subscription is the fact that he carried his imitation of the traditional style so far as to have a block made to illustrate the top of the ballad sheet. And it is, in fact, an illustration of a ballad seller. He has his little sheaf of ballads over his arm and he's approaching a good lady of the house beside a thatched cottage. And uh, it's not a bit like the traditional woodcut we've seen on so many other ballads but it is of considerable interest because the artist has signed it, and the artist is no less a person than Grace Gifford, which shows that not only Kent, but Grace Gifford, who was to become Mrs Joseph Plunkett, of course, was also interested in this venture, in grafting something of the Irish revival onto the mainstream ballad tradition, which had been overwhelmingly in the English language up to that date. Someday, Alf McLaughlin or Zimmerman or some other knowledgeable man in the ballad field may get around to publishing the thousands of ballads in the National Library archives. The ballad, as a source of social history, has been overlooked for far too long, and since the public ear grew dainty, fastidious and hypercritical with the spread of literacy, the ballad maker has to a large degree been ignored. But as Thackeray wrote at a time when the English ballad maker was dying out, It was his harsh, cracked, blatant voice that growled, squeaked, shouted forth the glorious truth and made big the patriotic hearts of his humble and admiring listeners. The ballad singer has lost his occupation, yet should he not pass away unthanked, unrecompensed. We have seen him a useful minister in rude society. We have heard him a loud-mouthed advocate of party zeal. Yet was he the first music seller in the land, who sold his lays without the help of other commendation than his own cracked yet honest voice who fed not journalists to advertise and trumpet forth his ditties, but to the public ear uttered the words and pitched the note himself, of him who, innocent of the superfluous theory of do-re-mi, warbled in his own wild naturalness and found an echo in the public heart. There a comely maid 
she's fairer than Diana bright. She's free from earthly pride. She's a lovely maid. Her dwelling place lies near the tanyard side. Farewell, my aged parents, and to you I bid adieu. I'm crossing the main ocean, my dear, for the sake of you. But if ever I return again, I will make you my bride, and I'll roll you in my arms down by the tanyard side. Last Saturday was committed to the city jail by the worshipful Anthony Blunt, Esquire, Mayor of Kilkenny, one Matthew O'Brien, charged with being a reputed popish priest, unlicensed and unregistered, and also charged with reading and performing the ceremonies of marriage between James Belson and Ellis Belson. The newspapers of the 18th and 19th centuries give the modern reader a fascinating insight into the life and ways of those times, and there was often a feeling for detail in the old newspapers which is lacking in our modern press. The year 1770 brought, for example, a report of violence and death from the County Kilkenny, recalling the far from commendable 18th century habit of abducting heiresses, a practice favoured by young bloods, anxious by fair means or foul, to make an advantageous marriage. We learn from Callan that on Sunday night, the fourth instant, a dreadful fray happened at the house of Edmund Harbert of Killaloo near Desert in the county of Kilkenny, farmer occasioned by a party of fellows amounting to sixteen or seventeen in number, coming to the said house, who, after breaking open the same and using the family with much cruelty, forcibly carried off Mary Harbert, daughter of the said Edmund, who has not since been heard of. The girl's father and mother, in striving to keep their child from the hands of the ravishers, were so severely treated that the former died of his wounds last Sunday, and the mother's life is despaired of. We also learn that one of the principal ringleaders in the said murder received a stroke of a hatchet, of which we hear he is since dead. But all was not violence and repression, as the gay happenings at Castle Durrow in 1765 bear testimony, again from the Freeman's Journal. Saturday the 6th instant, being the day on which the Right Honourable Lord Viscount Ashbrook attained his age to 21 years, there was a numerous and splendid meeting of his friends and tenants at Castle Durrow, and had an elegant entertainment provided for them, upon which the night ended with bonfires, music, dancing and illuminations. Urban life, of course, had its problems in the 18th century, problems which at times had quite a modern ring about them. Here is what Dame Street Dublin was like in the year 1765. A fellow riding on his car, galloping through Dame Street, ran over a child, and bruised it in so shocking a manner that its recovery is doubtful. Several of the inhabitants in the said street, being determined as far as in them lies to punish such offenders, stopped no less than six of those wretches riding on their cars through the same street, took down their numbers, and we are informed they intend to punish them in order to prevent the like accidents happening for the future. 
and neighbours could cause respectable persons difficulties, as this open letter to the press and address to the Dublin Corporation amply testifies. The most respectful compliments of the principal inhabitants of St Paul's Parish wait upon the Lord Mayor, Aldermen and Sheriffs, assure them that a visit from any of them to a most infamous brothel in Queen Street would be most acceptable, in order, if possible, to put a stop, if not to the entire proceedings of the infamous joint proprietors, the mothers Belton and Clark, of that villainous seminary, at least to oblige them to have so great a regard to their honest neighbours' lives as not to harbour nightly so desperate a gang as is usual with them ladies. What the fate was of the mothers Belton and Clark in 1771, and them ladies we will never know. And from life in the 18th century Dublin, one can turn in the National Library to the records of the controversies of the Dublin of the late 19th century, to the days of the early Gaelic League, of Douglas Hyde, Yeats, Singh and the Anglo-Irish Literary Revival, when the city was experiencing all the strains and excitements of a great period of change. Characteristic of the vigorous comments of the time was what on Clive Sullish, the Gaelic League's journal, thought of the Anglo-Irish theatre and its literary prospects in May 1899. The literary theatre may be indirectly helpful to the League by showing the absurdity of looking for nationality in such quarters. If the Gaelic League has sincerity in it, Irish literature in the English language will in time be laughed, not suppressed out of existence. And the story of Ireland is carried over into the present century in the Redmond and Dillon papers, in those of the Fenian leader John Devoy, and in the little papers such as the IRB's Irish Freedom and Connolly's Workers' Republic. The records are there too of 1916 and of later events like the Civil War. And the papers are a reminder too of war in 1939, when war was brought home to the citizens of a neutral country. This from the Irish press of the 7th of September in that year. The blackout in Dublin started on Saturday, a half-holiday. The shops had shut before most of us realised the problem there was to be faced. For years we have been brightening up our houses with gay curtains, cream paint, open windows. Now, in a flash, night descending, it is decreed that we must black, that no lights must be shown at night. It is a long time since I became familiar with the National Library in Kildare Street, Dublin, back in the late 1940s when I was a research student in University College. I soon got to know the high-roofed Victorian reading room, lined with reference books, the dark wooden desks, and above all the long, dimly lit, silent stacks of volumes of newspapers deep in the heart of the building. My interest at the time was in the social and political background to the Great Famine of the 1840s in Ireland. A grim period, but it opened up for me a great many new facets of Irish history, and it was to find much of the evidence there in the papers and documents of the National Library. A story of hardship, but sometimes of kindness and sacrifice too. The agony of the famine years and the apparent hopelessness of the times turned some men to think in terms of revolution in the early months of 1848. There in the papers of the Young Irelanders, stored in the National Library, especially in those of William Smith O'Brien and Charles Gavin Duffy, we can hear an echo of the expectations of those who, under the pressure of distress at home and revolution in France, began to move away from constitutional methods to revolutionary ones. 
Thomas Francis Marr, in a letter to George Gavin Duffy, a leader of the Young Irelanders, caught something of the spirit of those times when he wrote in March 1848. Every step must be a step out of the old road for the future. I for one do think that the time for talk, etc. has gone by, and the time for new and decisive action has arrived. But politics didn't make up the whole story of those 1840s. Deaths from hunger, the emigrant ships, were another side to it. But the papers in the National Library, it must be remembered, recall yet another aspect of those years which may well be forgotten. The fear about the future of the landlord class was well expressed at the time by Lord Palmerston, writing to another Irish landlord in the grim October of 1846, in a letter taken from the Monteagle papers. If the landed income of Ireland is to be compelled for any length of time to maintain a population which has grown up without any relation to the demand for labour or to the amount of the funds applicable to the employment of labour, the landowners will in the end be as well qualified as their cottiers to demand admission into the union workhouses. It would be wrong, however, to give the impression that the papers housed in the library refer just to the periods I am particularly interested in. Far from it. The letters and documents range over the whole course of Irish history. Deeds from the Middle Ages, Gaelic manuscripts, medieval and modern, in fact over a thousand of them, of enormous value to the historian and the student of Irish literature. The great collection of the Ormond papers, the Kilmainham papers, telling much about the military history of Ireland in the 18th and 19th centuries. Then there are the Larkham collection, invaluable for the mid-19th century and the history of Fenianism. Of another kind are, say, the W.B. Yeats collection and the fascinating and extensive manuscript and typescript works of George Bernard Shaw. Then again one finds in the library the papers from many of the great houses and estates of Ireland, invaluable for the student of social history, of the relations between landlord and tenants, and above all, for the local historian. The list of scholars who have worked in the National Library is impressive. Indeed, few books on Ireland appear without an acknowledgement to the National Library. But specialists aren't the only readers in the library. Citizens in search of accurate information are just as welcome as, say, a professional historian like Donald McCartney, who was telling me how he used the resources of the library to study the shaping of public opinion in Ireland. I remember on one occasion just going through Irish papers, uh, not, I wasn't studying Parnell in particular, but around about the period 1877, 78, 79, I was looking at the newspaper for something else. And there one could see uh, how a young man like Parnell was bidding for the leadership of the party, uh, how he was in fact attracting all the attention, attracting the fire of uh, the head of the party of the time, Isaac Butt, attracting the fire of the British press on his head, attracting the fire indeed and the notice of everybody uh, who was watching politics closely in Ireland or in Britain at the time. And one saw this, one didn't normally get this out of textbooks or even uh, specialist books dealing with Parnell at the time, but in just reading through the newspapers, you could see uh, in retrospect that this man was obviously aiming for something, uh, obviously going out of his way to make sure that he was the next leader of the party. This is the kind of thing that comes up or comes through on newspapers. I think the same thing probably uh, applies to, to uh, Daniel O'Connell. Most newspapers are inclined to say that, or most uh, texts 
that one read about was, would be inclined to say that Daniel O'Connell was finished in 1843. Now, if one read Gavin Duffy, or if one read one of the accounts after the, the event, one got this impression. But in fact, uh, looking at the newspapers of the period, including The Nation, which was, which was the paper of the Young Irelanders, a different picture entirely uh, appears. O'Connell was far from finished. He was still the old skilled politician. He was still holding monster meetings and so on like that. This is the kind of, of, of thing you get from newspapers, which in fact you don't really get uh, from memoirs or anything else of, of that nature. You have to go to the, the, the papers for it. Of course, papers have the disadvantage of being terribly attractive in one way. You spend a great deal of time reading things you're not supposed to read or you don't have time to read. Uh, the ads, for instance, in the papers of 100 years ago will always prove very attractive and time-consuming if, if you let your eye wander over these things. Uh, I remember reading uh, newspapers for accounts of the period just before 1916 and for the 1916 period itself. And there, one was uh, almost as much attracted by the ads as by the information they had and the news they had on 1916. For instance, you were told that a certain brand of soap washed your Union Jack much brighter than anything else, and why not buy this? And the kind of advertising material that Donald McCartney has been mentioning? Well, here is a hopeful piece of advice from the Dublin Freeman's Journal of February 1770, and it's all about Dr Ryan's pectoral essence of colt's foot, a new discovered medicine. An infallible cure for all colds, coughs, asthmas, consumptions, hoarseness, sore throats, wheezings, difficult breathings, hectic fevers, night sweats, spitting of blood, ulcers in the lungs, the most violent whooping coughs. Constitutions broken by intemperance are soon restored to health and vigour, restoring all inward wastings, weakness and decays, promoting digestion, recovering lost appetite. This noble restorative medicine is faithfully prepared and sold only by R. Ryan, surgeon and man midwife, in Cope Street. Price, three shillings and three pence the bottle. Well, you know, cheap at the price. But, however, for anybody interested in social and local history, there is much for him to find in the newspapers, provided he has the resolution to face a very, very formidable task. Robert Key, journalist commentator on television, student of history, especially Irish history, and author of the recently published book The Green Flag, is more than familiar with the newspaper files and, what's more, enjoys working on them. Newspapers in general I found invaluable for a work like this because they are a constant check on the times as to the way things really looked at the time. If you rely only on secondary sources, of course, uh, if you rely on the memoirs of politicians, which could be considered primary sources up to a point, um, you're never, of course, getting the, th the way things looked actually that day. That's the great thing about newspapers. They give you it as it looked that day. And when the politicians changed their mind a week later or events turned up a week later which seemed to change the appearance of things the week before, um, 
that subsequent development is not yet there to, as it were, contaminate what you're looking at. I think newspapers are absolutely invaluable in giving you this immediate look of the state of affairs on that day. Now, of course, newspapers, as we all know, get things wrong, and you have to be a bit careful about this. Um, but then you can find out that you were wrong again from the newspapers. A few weeks later, you find that uh, their report of something was apparently inaccurate. Uh, but then you get that from the newspaper too. It's, Of course it's hard work, but it's work that I... And people often say to me, wasn't it tremendously laborious work, slaving away through all those newspapers? I personally didn't find it so. I find it extremely stimulating. But then I'm someone who uh, adores reading newspapers. I mean, very often, when I, the last thought I have at night... Uh, when I'm sort of looking around life generally and perhaps not thinking it too good, I think, well, at least there'll be a fresh lot of newspapers in the morning. Well, when you're in a newspaper library, of course, uh, there's a virtually an infinite supply of newspapers. If you're looking at the Freeman's Journal for the 4th of February, 1876, you know there's going to be... And that's not particularly interesting. Well, you merely turn the page and you've got the 5th of February, 1876. And when you finish with that volume, you've got uh, 1877, etc., I use newspapers particularly and find them particularly valuable for the period, I should say, nineteen post-1916 rising to 1921, the treaty. Particularly useful because this is a period that has been written up very much in terms of how people perhaps would have liked it to have been, how they saw it in immediate retrospect. Um, a need to write it up in a certain way from both sides after the treaty split, um, a need to show that um, the way things had gone, that the, the, the violent development of things was perhaps an inevitable development, that uh, a Fenian solution to the problems of Irish nationalism were the only ones. Now, if you read the newspapers of from 1917 onwards, you see how... And I find this very valuable, how very clumsily, if you like, the whole Sinn Féin, the new Sinn Féin of the post-16 era, developed. You see how Sinn Féin went into the election of 1918 in no way um, saying we, we're going to rise up against the British government. The stress, if anything, was the other way. Don't worry, there won't have to be another rebellion. Um, we will arrive at an Irish Republic or Irish self-determination of whatever vague sort. Uh, the Ocean Fein, of course, was saying specifically a Republic, though many of its supporters were for whatever they could get. Um, we will arrive at this uh, goal by, first of all, by getting representation at the peace conference. Then you see how after um, the first Doyle Aaron as... as uh, taken place, you see Sinn Féin actually getting into an awful muddle because Ireland doesn't get represented at the peace conference. So what on earth is it to do then? It, this is a period, of course, where we now know, and there are a few signs in the newspapers, that Collins is beginning to see that only a sort of ruthless attitude is ever going to provoke this situation in, into development. Uh, what's particularly interesting, of course, on, on that score in 1919 is that um, you got you get these constant references to the the outrages as they're called or murders the shooting of policemen um, and nobody knows who it is and you get the Sinn Féin supporters condemning these outrages which everyone says are against the best interests of Ireland that's the sort of thing you get by studying the daily newspapers which you don't on the whole get by reading the histories of the period. Now Robert Key has talked of the way and I think rightly 
of how a newspaper can get you into the heart of a period, as no later account by a historian possibly can, and that without imposing conclusions which are born of the advantage of hindsight. The illustrated London news of the 11th of May 1867 on the trial of the Fenian prisoners after the Rising has this to say. The state trial at Dublin, which occupied seven days and resulted in the conviction of Thomas Burke and Patrick Doran on the charge of high treason, brings into prominence once more, may we not hope for the last time, the Fenian conspiracy for the establishment of the Irish Republic. The truth is, Fenianism is almost entirely an artificial movement. It is not a growth, but a manufacture. It is not indigenous, but foreign. Its avowed aims are those of revenge rather than reform, of destruction rather than enlarged freedom. The way in which contemporary political prejudices, and social ones too, can emerge in the newspapers of a time, I think comes out very clearly in a quotation from the London Illustrated News, telling of the arrest of the Fenian men after the rising at Tala in March 1867. It seems that uh, Tuesday, March the 5th, being Shrove Tuesday, was fixed upon by these infatuated Fenians for a general rising throughout the south and southwest of Ireland. But the secret of the plot had been conveyed to Dublin Castle, and the authorities were on the alert. An Irish-American named Massey, who is described as the reputed commander-in-chief of the Irish Republic, was arrested on his way to Dublin, and troops were moved to various points. In all, 208 prisoners were marched into Dublin on Wednesday week from Tala. They were brought first to the Upper Castle Yard, where they were detained until the police could make the necessary preparations for their reception. When these were completed, the prisoners were taken to the Metropolitan Police Department, Lower Castle Yard. Here their names were taken by officers of the detective force, and they were paraded for the inspection of the Lord Lieutenant. They were mostly youths under 20 years of age, shop boys and apprentices of a low class, with others who were mere city rabble, dirty and ragged in appearance. With them were a few older men of more soldierly aspect and carriage, who served in the late Civil War in America. Robert Key, in his writings, has been largely concerned about general problems, but I believe that progress can only be made in the field of Irish history if we really get back to the roots, to regional history, to local studies. And the other day I had an opportunity of talking to Thomas P. O'Neill of University College Galway about how newspapers can aid the local historian. He remarked in passing how useful even the advertisements could be. They contain things that are happening every day. They're not the uh, ordinary news, is the unusual sort of thing. Uh, for instance, there was an account of a man killed at hurling, but no other account in about 1762 of any hurling match. It's only because the man was killed that it comes in. So locally you find information scattered in papers, in the Dublin papers as well as in the local papers. Uh, accounts of things that you really wouldn't uh, expect to find in papers. Advertisements for land, uh, deeds, accounts of the properties and so on, and the rents. Also, you get the imports and what is in use in areas and what is being made. And, of course, the occasional death of a man tells you. For instance, in Dublin, here about our uh, book binders. It was an account of a death, which mentions that he was the most eminent man in his trade. 
this man died, actually, at a time when we see a change in style in the uh, beautiful bookbindings of the uh, uh, House of Parliament records. But then we have other records that give you local history, for instance, private collections. The Kulatin papers, I think, are the most extensive, though probably I think the Lismore papers go back further. They start about 1584. The Lismore papers give records starting from the time of Walter Raleigh, and uh, they show a great deal of the accounts of the estates that were came under the Munster plantation right through the late 16th and 17th centuries. And uh, this massive collection is full of local history of the all East Cork, Waterford areas. The Monteagle papers. The Monteagle papers, I think, are uh, probably most valuable for the uh, political material of Lord Monteagle, but the local historian can find their records of conditions during the famine uh, in the Foynes area in Limerick. Immense source getting to people long forgotten, getting to types of living, styles of life that are gone. Any local historian will be uh, absolutely amazed with what he can find either in the private collections, in the more general collections, or in the newspapers in the National Library. The one difficulty with newspapers, of course, is how to work through them. They're hard work. One can take a local paper, and, of course, one, if one can find in a local paper that uh, something that you uh, think might be of more general interest, you can look at for longer accounts in the national papers, the mo daily papers, always a good tip for local historians or for people searching for something to work through a paper that comes out weekly rather than through a paper that comes out daily. Once you've got the date then you can go to the daily but it's six times as much work to search through a daily paper as it is to go through a weekly. For the local historian documents in estate papers can tell a great deal about administration, about the landlords including the absentee landlords. Lord Beckdiff, one of the great Anglo-Irish landowners of the time, in March 1768 wrote as follows to his young friend, Anthony, 11th Viscount Gormanston. By last packet I had the honour of a letter from your lordship and shall with pleasure obey your commands in representing to the grand jury the impropriety of granting a presentment for a new road through your estates when you are shortly expected to Ireland and I am apt to believe that your request will be complied with, as I think that every gentleman ought to do in such a case as he would desire to be done by. Your almost constant absence from this kingdom since your earliest days has prevented me from the pleasure of seeing you for several years. I am glad to hear of your intention to come soon to Ireland, which is a fine island, and would be in a more flourishing condition if the gentlemen of property did not desert it. And I flatter myself that when you have taken this tour, which young gentlemen naturally wish to take, that you will then settle, and that this country will reap advantage by your observations. Castle Comar, County Kilkenny, and yet another aspect to local history, namely the power of the landlord over his tenants. In this case, a complaint made to the agent of the prior Wandsford family, the landlords and coal mine owners. Ballyellen House, 8th October, 1822. I take leave to trouble you with a complaint against a tenant of yours of the name of Robert Booth of Monin, and if not disagreeable to you, I would feel very much obliged by your having him before you, 
and ordering him to refund me a sum of money which perhaps the difficulties of the times have prevented him paying before now. He sent to my house two years since two tons of coals, and the men took from me a banknote of four pound to change at the village of Gore's Bridge adjoining my estate to pay themselves one pound sixteen shillings, which was the value of the coals, and bring me back the change. However, finding, as I believe, that they could not get change for the note, they thought proper to decamp with it, and gave the entire to Robert Booth, their master, who has not had the honesty to return me the difference. I very reluctantly make this application, aware that the knowledge of so nefarious a transaction must make an unfavourable impression on his landlord or agent, but I am this moment informed by Wilson, a coal carrier, who will hand you this letter, that if you are so good as to intervene, there is no doubt but I will be paid. I am obliged to yours, etc., Water Blackney. A great national collection, naturally enough, is the accumulated records of the centuries. But it also serves the present day, as the current newspaper files, parliamentary reports and the proceedings of the international organisations testify. The National Library even has the records of the Seven Days Tribunal, dealing with the controversial TV inquiry into illegal money-lending transactions, catalogued and listed for future generations of social and political historians. Tim Pat Coogan, author of Ireland Since the Rising and of a book on the IRA, knows the National Library well as a journalist and worker in contemporary history. He was talking to me in his office in the Irish press. Both my books uh, were written largely uh, from interview, and um, I only uh, the linchpins of things I would I would after interviewing some figure who took part in some uh, episode I'd go along see what the papers had to say about it at the time. But for instance, on the the, the IRA, for instance, they had nothing at all. They they just didn't have any useful stuff, and the catalogue was uh, very bare. Um, you see, a library suffers from the limitations of the society around it. It may have a financial limitation, have that much money available, or it may be politically inadvisable, or just politically difficult. People may not. For instance, some IRA people would feel that this is uh, an arm of the establishment and they wouldn't send it on their papers. They might fetch up in the special branch, they might think, or the editor of the Mosquito Journal of the time might be too busy getting his paper out and keeping away from the police to think of sending a copy to the National Library. Or if he did think of sending it, he might uh, say, I will not send it to them because that's only a government uh, body. I think I suggested to them there in the first instance they should keep uh, files on the um, United Irishman and, and public, the Republican News and all these other things. I know they're certainly trying to do it. Um, but I think that they have to do it by going down to the GPO very often and buying a copy outside. They don't get them sent to them automatically. Um, if you've been in the library, and particularly recently, uh, there's, as the years have gone by, the walls haven't expanded, and the number of tin boxes pile up. And I would fear for uh, the cataloging, certainly, of a lot of stuff. Uh, it costs a lot of money to put these things in order. For instance, the Devoy papers, I think they wouldn't have been certainly wouldn't have been published if it wasn't for uh, Joe McGrath. Um, a library, though, it's, uh, it, it acts as a, a dispenser of information, which is not otherwise available. It provides an atmosphere for study. Uh, you do find, of course, a lot of people using it getting out of the rain. I remember recently I was fascinated during a period of about a month when I attended there for an hour each day. There was a gentleman sitting beside me who spent his time... Uh, 
doing erotic pen and ink drawings. I, I hope his papers are given to the collection. In the 19th century, especially in the second half of it, the writing of Irish history took on a new significance. It was the age of historians of the standing of William Hartpole Lecky and James Anthony Froude. And Donald McCartney of UCD, as a modern historian, has found that material in the National Library can tell us some surprising and valuable things about these historians of another day, including their prejudices. If one read their books, one got one particular view of uh, Ireland and one got a particular view of their opinions of Ireland. But when one began to read the newspaper controversy and the magazine controversy that sprung up as a result of their writing, one got uh, what the ordinary person was, was thinking, what, the, what was the opinion of the general reader. For instance, one could get, in reading just the newspapers uh, of the period, reading the reviews, reading the letters that came in, reading the controversy that went on as a result of, let's say, uh, James Anthony Froude's book, The English in Ireland, one got a very distinct impression of, on the one hand, a certain racialist element on the part of those who were obviously British at the time. And one got a, a distinct impression of uh, imperialism coming across in a, in, a, in a way that one never got it from just reading about it in secondary sources. And one got an impression of a, a very lively row going on between Irish defenders like a historian, Lecky, and people who believe that the Irish were not able to rule themselves, uh, a man like James Anthony Froude, who held, of course, that the Irish had a double dose of original sin and that uh, they could never govern themselves, that like other, uh, like uh, the Hottentots, the Irish were not able to rule themselves. Certain people, like the English or the Germans, were able to rule themselves and were born to rule, the others were not. Now, this is the kind of thing you got... Uh, you didn't always find this in their writings, uh, in their books, but when they got into controversy, this sort of thing came across, and you got a better idea of how public fi figures really felt. It's the same sort of thing you get, I think, when you look at their, their letters and their correspondence. Uh, I mentioned Lecky. One gets the impression from, t uh, from just reading his books that here was a man who was a very moderate man, a very rational man, a very easygoing man and a real scholar and so forth. All you have to do is to read the letters which he wrote to the newspapers against the Irish Land League or something of this nature, and you've got a different side to the man entirely. And it helps to explain some of the more public uh, expressions made by the man in Parliament or elsewhere. So from that point of view, newspapers are, are uh, exceptionally useful. Uh, they give you the contemporary flavour, the contemporary colour, and uh, my feeling is that uh, we haven't uh, used these newspapers half enough. And what of the men whose work it is to make the papers available to the public? Before he went to teach history in University College Galway, Thomas P. O'Neill worked on the staff of the library for many years, and he has his memories. The people that came into the library in my time varied number of local historians from all over Ireland came in. There was one farmer from North Cork who took fortnight every summer to work in the National Library, working through newspapers, old newspapers of North Cork. And uh, I don't think he ever wrote anything. He took notes there, but he was terribly interested in anything that happened, particularly in the area between McCroom and Mill Street, around Carriganima. That's it. He was up from the, that part of the country, a man named Mr. Cronin. 
Of course, we had a number of people of that kind who were interested in uh, local history, some of them much better known, like uh, District Justice Dermot Leeson, whose work on the 17th century and later his work on the uh, uh, Diocese of Killaloo with uh, Father Aubrey Gwynne uh, are probably among the most important contributions to Irish local history. But the types of questions that you could be asked there, I remember Jim Carty, Lord of Mercy, Jim was the man who wrote the Carty's History of Ireland, and he was on the staff when I went there. And the phone rang on one occasion, and he picked it up to answer the query, and he put his hand behind him while he was listening to the query. And the book right behind him it was the Dictionary of National Biography, and it opened, apparently, at the right page, because all I heard him say was when the uh, sound ended from the phone, was saying... Goldsmith died at such and such a time in the morning in 20 Devonshire Square or somewhere like that in London on such and such a date. The book had opened just at the right position and he had been able to answer offhand a query that had come in over the phone. But uh, normally it didn't fall like that for you. You had to do a bit of hunting. Uh, I remember a query about uh, the meaning, uh, the value of uh, what uh, John Field got for writing a nocturne, the amount of money he got in rubles in 1827 in uh, Russia. And, of course, the person asking the query thought it was uh, a, a very difficult question. Uh, he had answered a number, asked an, a number of other questions, but uh, I had been able to deal with those. And he said, oh, you couldn't answer this one. So I said, why not? And I took him upstairs to where we had the old editions, the out-of-date editions of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And we looked under Russia and found the national debt was so much in rubles and then in brackets after it so much sterling in the 1824 edition. So we had the relationship between rubles and sterling. These are the type of questions that often small, you know, they're seemingly small, but they were contributing something towards a, an amount of knowledge uh, or towards a picture which someone was building up for their local history, for their biographical, for their general history. And this, I think, is the function of the library in a way, to direct people. The library has treasures, and one of its problems is that written catalogues cannot really answer all questions. It's so much in personal contact. People like the late Paddy O'Connor, who was count on the counter duty there in the library when I started as a student, was a man who took to himself the problems of others and he went searching and he'd always come out, maybe some of it would be useless, but he always came out with some gems of bits of information that no catalogue could have found. A central library in the modern world, be it the British Museum in London or the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, has a changing role. And in many countries now, new approaches to the place of such major libraries in society has been developing. Given, given adequate resources, and this of course is a very important point, such a library can become a great centre for records of all kinds, linked perhaps with the National Archives, and searching out too material about new social and political movements, as Tim Pat Coogan argues, beginning, in his case, with a recent experience of his own which suggests that a new and vital approach to collecting may become a most important factor for the future. Uh, I recently figured in a, a curious little episode. Uh, one day I got a letter from uh, the librarian of an American university mm -hmm. 
Boston College, and he said that he'd been um, following my work with interest and my career with interest and so forth, and he'd like to have my papers. So uh, his name was Gottlieb, and I hadn't, uh, I was going not to uh, reply to him, and I happened to come across a book, The Founding Fathers, by, uh, about uh, Joseph Kennedy, and I noticed that the, the writer acknowledged the help of one Mr. Gottlieb and this, the librarian at another university. I just wondered if it had been the same man. Possibly it was a serious letter, so I wrote back and said, uh, by the way, my age, is, it's, it's written 3-6, not 6-3. Are, are you sure you've got the right man? He wrote back and quite clearly had the right man, and he set out a schema, what he thought was the idea for a collection. He wanted to grow old with the creator of the collection. He wants all my letters, all my articles, and uh, certainly some of my correspondence he won't get, but any papers I would collect, and uh, certainly any original manuscripts and proof stuff, galleys, all this kind of thing. So um, I, I thought about it for a while and said, well, I suppose any man's life, uh, even my own, would be of interest in years to come, I suppose. If you touch a number of things, it'll give some kind of a periscope into that particular uh, period in the past. Do you remember, for instance, uh, Farrell of Carlo, his diaries showed a, shed a light on, on the 98 Rebellion, for instance. So, um, anyway, I, I've agreed to do that. I'll, I'll be making the proviso that uh, the National Library got any kind of special preference is possible in that case of photostats or, or whatever, if they want something sent back for some exhibition or something. But the, the reason I did it was that, first of all, given that uh, the prophet, if he is a prophet in his own country, will naturally be without honour, very often without profit, there isn't uh, in the National Library that kind of space. I mean, every letter I might write, you wouldn't even think the presumption of sending it to them if they'd be flown out the door. Already you're going in the door past rows of tin boxes and the stuff isn't being catalogued or put away. It may be some notes taken of it, but I just don't know how you get at the contents of boxes 1 to 80 or whatever they are. So there is an obvious limitation. They don't have the, um, the resources they'd want to have, um, you know, microfilming. They have some microfilm, but they'd want a lot more. There's obviously a great deal of stuff about the safe past, as it were, the 19th century, the early part of this century. I mean, you're tripping over American PhD students all over the place writing things about obscure figures in Irish history. And there's enough stuff for them to do it in the National Library. So often, obviously, there's a, a very um, fine slice of our heritage preserved there, I just wonder, what about the present? Uh, what are we doing to preserve the present? Because there's a great explosion of stuff happening. I mean, what's happening in the north? And all the turmoils down here, say the arms trial, the um, anything you like, the Widgery Tribunal, vast amount of stuff about this. Uh, I wonder how they're fixed to uh, take that up, you know. I, I don't think uh, on the, ba the face of it that they're given the money uh, to do that. But somewhere, somebody has to file this stuff. It just can't go down the spout. And I'd be afraid that um, our national catchment area is letting a lot of stuff down the spout. Um, with the turmoil, we have the hidden history here. You know, people on the run, they don't, uh, we don't have a, a tradition of noting stuff or letting it become declassified after a while, you know. It's only now we're getting the secret treaty debates some 50 years after it, when every word of them has been memorised in private and said. You know, the, the best collection, I'm sure, of uh, secret documents about any period in Ireland uh, would be in the Department of Justice, if they're, if they're there at all, if they haven't been thrown out. 
there'll be some, there'll be definitely a case to be made for getting an application for the, say, the documents of the 20s at least to be released from them and microfilmed, put down posthumously, but at least ensure, whatever we do, we'll say, right, they're not released for the year, splash, another 100 years, but at least let somebody look at all the various sources, have the money to look for them first, and secondly, the resources to, uh, the mechanical equipment you need to put them on record in some way. What Tim Pat Coogan has been saying points to the fact that while the historians dealing with the past centuries are well enough catered for, the problem remains of the historians of the future who will be writing about the events of the second half of the 20th century in Ireland. Will such historians be able to get access to well-ordered, comprehensive collections of government papers, departmental and otherwise, and what of the vast range of local government records? Again, can we be certain that in the future the national collection of newspapers, reviews and journals will be adequately housed, as well housed as men strove to do so in the past? Conserving, of course, for the future costs money, demands adequate, highly trained and dedicated staff. It remains to be seen whether we are prepared now to recognise and to honour our moral obligation to the future in this respect.